You're listening to Feed, Play, Love, a podcast that's all about supporting parents as they bring up children. We've got experts and advice to help you through the more challenging bits of parenting. I'm Siobhan Hunt. Lo Carmen is an actor, musician and mother who grew up around and was inspired by some of the fiercest women in Australian music history. Her first claim to acting fame was in one of Australia's most iconic films from the 80s, The Year My Voice Broke. Her musical experience seems to have started in the womb. Lo's life has been full of rich experiences, led by her willingness to follow the path less travelled and her need to keep writing and creating songs. Her book, Lovers, Dreamers, Fighters, is part memoir, part celebration of Australia's musical history and some incredible women who helped shape Lo herself. Hi, Lo. Welcome to Feed, Play, Love. Hi, Siobhan. Thank you. Good to be here. This is such an interesting book. So much history is entwined with your own personal experience. Um, (laughs) Were you aware of what an incredible childhood you were living at the time? No, I wasn't actually. And I never really thought very much about it until I had lived outside of Australia for a really long time and then came back and unpacked my storage boxes. And at first I was completely overwhelmed by all the junk that I'd kept. (laughs) And then I started realising how special some of the things were and some of the people that I had known were. And the more I thought about it, the more I just wanted to write about them so that the world could hear more about how incredible they all were. Because I feel like some of them have perhaps not get got the due that they deserve. Yeah, I was wondering about that. I mean, there are definitely names in your book, like Chrissy Amphlett, that people will know and will understand who that person is and all the amazing things that she did. But others like, um, maybe I'm just speaking for myself here, but Robin Archer and Wendy Sandingham, these are women who had a massive impact on you, were part of our cultural fabric as Australians. But then I wonder how many people know of them Mm. or of the other women you talk about in your book. Yeah, that's right. Um, Well, Wendy Saddington has very much disappeared from um, people really don't know who she is now, but she was probably the most famous woman in Australian music or possibly even in Australia in the late 60s, early 70s. She was a very wild, rebellious soul singer. And because she didn't record, she has just kind of disappeared. Robin Archer, on the other hand, is hugely revered all around the world. But she's, you know, not as massively known as a pop singer like Chrissy Amphlett or Renee Geyer, who I wrote about. But, um, you know, Robin is performing everywhere and giving speeches and she certainly doesn't need any she doesn't need me to do anything (laughs) (laughs) I've just been living under a rock but um (laughs) well I I've never claimed to have any kind of understanding of music history in Australia myself but um speaking of that history these women uh not only as you say they've they've they were talented and incredible, but they sound like they really carved their own path in a way 
when I read your book, seems uniquely Australian. I don't know if you have that sense of it. Yeah, I do think that Australians are uniquely brazen and I think that that's such a cool thing about Australians. There's something about being on the other side of the world and observing so much culture is thrown at us from England and America, especially America, obviously. But we seem to absorb it and then put it out to the world with our own inimitable Australian thing on it (laughs) that nobody outside of Australia can reproduce. Australians, I think, are really special. It does feel like you were marinated in music Um, (laughs) and from a really early age. And it's probably very hard to reflect on this because it's your life experience. But as a mother raising your own kids in your own dare I say, crazy lifestyle. (laughs) 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 How much difference do you think it makes to be brought up around that kind of creativity? Well, I do actually think about this a lot because in the 70s when I was growing up, it was very natural for kids to be a part of adults' social life in terms of there was a lot of Um, you know music on in the afternoons my dad was a you know rock and roll musician he played every Sunday afternoon outdoors in an amphitheater at the festival theater and that was just full of kids dancing around up the front and their parents were all you know getting drunk and having a boogie (laughs) and whatever but it was like kids were a part of the whole music scene and I feel like we don't have that so much anymore like I think it's wonderful that kids are more kind of protected and prioritised now in a lot of ways, but I also feel sad for them that they don't just get to explore that thing of being a little kid looking around at all these crazy adults doing crazy things (laughs) and soaking it up because I loved it. Not every kid would, but I did and I feel lucky. You do sound like you were quite a unique kid. (laughs) Uh, You did write about how you were expelled from primary school. I think that's quite an achievement. Yes, yes. I was actually expelled from kindergarten too. (laughs) (laughs) Misunderstood, I think, is the word you're looking for. Oh, that's it, misunderstood. (laughs) Uh, I'm just wondering if you found acceptance with your parents and whether you always had a strong sense of who you were creatively. Yeah, definitely. Um, My parents were unusually accepting, I think, of the fact that I was a total weirdo outsider (laughs) kid. Um, You know, I was actually diagnosed ADHD when I was, I think, about six, but like my mum had never heard of anything like that at that time. And, um, you know, she was very much in the dark trying to work out how to deal with this crazy kid that like I never slept and I was just kind of loud and annoying and (laughs) I just wanted to you know sing rock and roll songs loudly and (laughs) go to gigs with my dad and they just kind of went oh okay just let her do whatever she wants like I was fed on a tray in my bedroom um (laughs) which I was very happy about but you know they just they worked out how to deal with me and then eventually um a doctor said, have you ever heard of this thing called hyperactivity? You know, And eventually 
some things started working and I settled down um, and my parents just always dealt with that in a very kind of calm, <laughs> great way, which I think is pretty impressive. Speaking about your childhood and, and the experiences you had and being a part of history, I was really struck with your writing about um, Susie Sidewinder and mm -hmm. That documentary, the 1987 documentary that was called Susie's Story, is literally seared in my memory as such, yeah. a, such a poignant, sad story. I would have only been about 10 or 11 at the time. And wow. as soon as I read that in your book, I was like, oh, my God, lo new Susie. Like <laughs> um, that, that documentary to me seems like such a huge thing a huge part of our history and our understanding of the AIDS epidemic. I mean, do you have that sense of its historical importance? Yeah, yeah, I do. I mean, I remember, um, you know, for for people that are listening, Susie Sidewinder, who I wrote about in in my book, was a, a New York woman, a kind of wild dancer, entertainer who fell in love with an Australian man Vince Lovegrove who managed the Divinals and she moved to Australia with him and they had a child and then she found out she was HIV positive or in fact she pretty much had full-blown AIDS by the time she found out and it was right at the beginning of the AIDS epidemic and she was actually the first woman to die in Australia of AIDS and I worked for her husband as a secretary at 16 uh, and also just looking after her, keeping her company. And she was a hugely inspirational, amazing person. And I, unfortunately, I don't think you can find the documentary to watch anymore. There's a couple of little bits on, on YouTube if you look up Susie's story. But uh, it's a shame that they, they don't have the whole documentary now. And, you know, I didn't realise until I looked into it after reading your book that her son eventually passed away as well he was only seven mm -hmm. is that right yeah Troy he was seven yeah and after she died Vince and Troy moved next door to my family so we you know remained very close and I did lots of looking after Troy and watched his whole journey and the, the way his you know now single dad had to coordinate trying to get him into schools and daycare he was an amazing little kid that knew that he was going to die like his mum and was just really determined to be an educational activist for children like mm -hmm. <laughs> God, I'm getting goosebumps actually just talking about him he was such a amazingly wise little kid and he was constantly kind of without meaning to just kind of comforting and inspiring all the adults around him who were you know so devastated and terrified about what was going to happen and there's no answers they never knew how long he'd live but he achieved a lot in his short life he also had a documentary made at his own insistence he wanted one that was for kids mm. called Troy's story following in his mum's footsteps your book does go through so many incredible experiences and the things that you witness that are part of our history. And I just mentioned that one particularly tragic story about Susie and Troy, 
But one thing that comes out very clearly in this book and the way you write it is your innate spontaneity, I guess, and flexibility in terms of living a creative life and your commitment to that. You did have your first baby at 20, which feels extraordinarily young for the old, <laughs> the old mother that I was when I had my babies. But I'm wondering if that spirit of spontaneity helped prepare you for motherhood at such a young age. Uh, yeah, I think so. I think that, you know, because my mum worked on films and in theatre as a costume maker and my dad was a musician, so our fortunes were always up and down, mainly down. So we were always moving house, always, um, you know, never really sure of what was going to be happening. Like we never could plan family holidays or went overseas or any of those kind of things. It was just very much living day by day. Sometimes times were great, sometimes they weren't. And I guess I just got very used to living like that with just going with the flow and, you know, making hay when the sun shines and trying not to fall apart when things seem desperate. So by the time, and also I was a high school dropout so by the time I was 20, I kind of I felt pretty old and experienced. <laughs> so I'm ready to put my feet up now. Well, actually, given all the experiences you had, you probably did have about three or four times the amount of life experience as your <laughs> peers. Um, but the interesting, the other interesting thing, this fascinates me, is that you had your second baby 16 years later. Mm -hmm. um, I'm always intrigued when parents come back to the beginning after raising their child to independence um, yeah. because there are such different needs at different times of a child's life. And personally, I don't have the brain capacity to um, go back to the beginning <laughs> after I've kind of dealt with one age. I think, okay, I've moved on now. I don't have to worry about wiping their bottoms anymore. Yeah. Um, and also the way we parent or the advice that's given to parent changes dramatically in a well, that's wide true. period of time. And, and I'm just wondering what that experience was like for you when you had your second baby. Well, I think when I had my baby at 20, um, I was very much alone in terms of I didn't have any kind of, I mean, I had my mum who I was very close to and was incredibly helpful. But, you know, the baby's dad was off at work all the time and all of my friends were off at work. Like I didn't know any other people with babies. So I was very much alone and just figuring it out. And then by the time I, 16 years later, <laughs> had the second one, I kind of thought that I'd, you know, that it would all just be very easy and that I knew all about having babies and having children and it would be, you know, be a bit of a breeze. And <laughs> I, I was really quite shocked, I think, when I realised that it's not really a breeze at all, even though, like, I remembered how kind of lonely and and isolating it could be. I I had forgotten just the physicalness of, of having a baby. Like, it's just so all-demanding. And my son didn't sleep. I 
I don't think for the, probably the first three years more than a couple of hours at night <laughs> and trying three to combine years. that with just constantly doing gigs and at first I was attempting to still tour and just take my baby with me but you know I wasn't making a lot of money so it wasn't like I could take a nanny with me or yeah anything so I was really just picking up babysitters and it was always incredibly fraught and like, I don't want to leave my baby with a stranger it all got a bit hard and and overwhelming <laughs> it does sound like after your first baby it, you still continued your creative pursuits you still made it work somehow with that um dare I say it scrappy attitude to life <laughs> that you'd learned yeah. learned growing up which is really really refreshing speaking as someone who loves my routine loves well not loves but is very set <laughs> in trying to work out that I can pay the rent and do these things I'm not saying that it was yeah. ever easy for you not to have those in, things in place but it is really refreshing to hear how you approach life with this big-hearted openness to creativity <laughs> and and just going with it and even though it is very apparent that times were tough it doesn't sound in the book like you ever bemoaned that or it, sound, it sounded like the cost that was for your the choice of lifestyle, you were prepared to make it. Yeah, absolutely. I've, I've always looked at uh, making music as a real gift, you know, at being very lucky that it's something that I'm able to do, even though it's never um, made me very much money. It's given me a, a really beautiful life and made me feel very satisfied you know in my soul and kind of allowed me to spend a lot of time with my children growing up because that's just kind of how it worked <laughs> in terms of timing i was going to say um speaking of the the scrappiness and the open-heartedness as well you paint a very clear picture of one point where you were attempting to film a, a music video with your partner whilst I think maybe you were trying to breastfeed or, yes, or something like I that. Was. And yeah. he was telling you to be sexy <laughs> or something. Sexy. You know? <laughs> yeah, we had we'd borrowed a you know a really good video camera from a cinematographer friend, and we had to get it back. <laughs> and my daughter, who was then sixteen, had gone to the beach on the bus and taken the house keys and so oh. we were locked in the garage <laughs> with the baby who had and we were using cloth nappies and oh my done you know a big old poo and <laughs> didn't have proper things to clean him up so he was like naked and miserable and we just no. had to get the clip finished to return the camera so I was breastfeeding him and jiggling him and my <laughs> partner was saying come on just try and look sexy for god's sake you know that's kind of what you've got to do in a music video clip uh, but you say you yeah. try being sexy with <laughs> baby yeah, poo much. and breast milk all over you see how you feel no, it, it worked out all right in the end <laughs> we got there you got there um you spent a lot of your time in america and at the very beginning of one of the chapters where you talk about your experiences there, you write, America is really just a giant album to me. And then you go <laughs> on to list all these amazing parts of America that reflect the music that's influenced you and um, 
I love the way you talk about food because <laughs> I, I too wanted to eat everything when I was in America. Um, yeah. Now you came home to Australia at the start of the pandemic. So that's two years now. Yeah. Do you miss America? Uh, yeah, I, I miss some of the friends that I made. I made really lovely mum friends mainly from um, from my kids' schools there because it was quite hard to, you know, re-establish a music community mm. there. But I, I made some really beautiful friends. Um, so, but that's okay. I'm used to kind of, you know, you see friends when you see them and it doesn't really change anything. That's kind of the nice thing I think about traveling a bit is that you realize that you just kind of hook up when the time is right and it's just as beautiful as if you see people every week or friendships seem to survive time and distance pretty well. Mm. And we have to thank the pandemic because without it, you may not have sat down and gone through all of those boxes. Absolutely. <laughs> so, <laughs> Lo, congratulations on this book. It is a beautiful read and thank you so much for speaking with us today. Thanks so much, Siobhan. I really enjoyed it. That's Lo Carmen. She's a musician, actor and author of Lovers, Dreamers, Fighters. For links to the book, check out the notes in this episode. I'm Siobhan Hunt. I hope you enjoyed this episode. If you did, please rate and review us so we can reach and help even more parents. And if you have a topic you'd like me to cover, send your email to feedplaylove at theparentbrand.com.au. See you next time. <laughs>